From WXCI 91.7 in Danbury, this is Public Reading Club, a radio program dedicated to discussions about books, writing, reading with writers and book people. Your host is Matt Caputo. Thanks for joining us again on Public Reading Club, a radio show and podcast about books, writing, book people, and everything in between. I'm Matt Caputo. I'm your host. It's great to be here again. I'm really excited about this episode. I'm really not going to waste too much time here at the top uh, of the show. Uh, Our guest today is Ian McCallan, whose book, Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American is just a fascinating read about the basically the intersection of Italian and American food and their cultures. Uh, It's a really cool book if you like food and if you like really one of the most popular types of cuisine in the world, but especially here in America where it's been adapted and uh, it's been used in so many different interpretations. Um, he's our first guest. He's a fantastic writer, journalist, and it's great to have Ian McCowan visiting with us uh, on this episode of the Public Reading Club. Also joining us will be Eric Afgang, who was a uh, teacher here in the uh, Westcon MFA program, and he's a fantastic writer who's written several books, but also is uh, a pretty active freelance writer who comes up with some great stories. And he has a very interesting story about a sideshow uh, kind of magician who uh, influenced the great science fiction writer Ray Bradbury. And uh, it's really going to be, uh, you know, if if you've enjoyed this show so far, I think I dare to say that this might be one of our most uh, fun episodes. Uh, Ian's book is fantastic and Eric's article is great. Incidentally, it gives me the opportunity to bring up the idea that I didn't want to just make this show exclusively about books. I love books. I read a book or two uh, all the time at the same time. Uh, and I, you know, wanted to create a platform to talk about them. But I also wanted to create a show where we encourage people to check out really good uh, long form pieces, magazine articles. Uh, stuff posted to websites uh, that that have been well done and well researched. Uh, so long form journalism, I guess you could say, is is another interest of mine, and I guess you could say it's another interest uh, of the public reading club. So uh, it's really great to have both Ian and Eric on the show. We're also going to release to you a uh, voicemail that came in uh, via recommendation. Uh, from a gentleman named Eugene Keogh, who may or may not have been, uh, as they say, three sheets to the wind when he submitted said voicemail. But um, I want to thank him for his recommendation. So stay with us here on 91.7 WXCI West Con Radio. Uh, 
here in Danbury, Connecticut, as we go to the fourth episode of Public Reading Club. You've all been great. We've been growing just a little bit on Instagram and social and stuff like that. Uh, I want to thank Peter Blauner for coming on uh, our last show. It was really a fantastic episode. If you want to go back and check that out, we're on Spotify and everywhere uh, podcasts are available. You can hear the show. We're also twice a month on WXCI Sunday mornings at 7.30 a.m. So it was really great uh, to have these two great writers in. We have a really fantastic writer on the horizon. I'm not allowed to say who it is or what uh, book they sent me in the mail. But all I can say is we have a great uh, crime fiction legend uh, coming to the public reading club soon. And I'll get that episode to you as soon as we tape it. So uh, I'd like to thank Pat Frenette, our engineer and producer, for always being here and uh, making this show uh, work as smoothly as it has and for the great edit he did on the last show with Peter Blauner, who's uh, a fantastic guest. Without further ado, please check out our interview now with Ian McCallan, author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American, and then stick around for later in the show when we have uh, Westcon MFA professor and just prolific writer and journalist Eric Ofgang on the show, uh, as well as a special book recommendation from uh, you, the listeners of the Public Reading Club. Welcome back to the Public Reading Club. Our guest today is writer and book critic Ian McCowan. He is the author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American, out now from Roman and Littlefield. Ian, thanks for making the trip from Brooklyn today. How, how was the ride up on the train? It was great. I mean, this was my uh, my first time riding the New Haven Line to uh, uh, on the Metro North, which is uh, actually an aspiration of mine to have, have done. I've done the other Metro Norths and Long Island Railroads and, and New Jersey Transit. So uh, you've, you've helped check off a box for me today. All the way to the end, huh? Uh, first time taking the train all the way to Danbury. I had to transfer, uh, which was an interesting experience. Uh, because you had to go up and over and the train coming in was late. So I was like, are they going to hold it for me? And then I realized, you know, they were holding that train for my train. So I was probably pretty good. This brings up a, a story in my past that I guess would, this would be an opportune time to share. It's pretty eerie. And uh, uh, I guess there's a sensitivity warning that there's a, there's an accident in the train accident about to come. But um yeah, one time I when I was an undergraduate student at Westcon here very briefly 20 years ago, um, I took the train back home from uh, here, and we eventually, I think I eventually crossed over and we got down and we were, we were right near Mamaroneck. And I remember I was reading a book, actually. Good thing I can remember. I was reading a book of all articles about Mike Tyson. It was called Iron Mike, and it was a collection of articles about Mike Tyson. And um, there were two ladies behind me, and they were being very, very chatty and loud. And the train was moving pretty fast. And then I remember the sound. This is kind of a weird thing to get into at the top of the show, but I remember the sound of the kind of conductor coming over the loudspeaker to say, Did we hit him? I think we got him, the other guy says. And, yeah, they stopped the train, and they asked us to get off the train because we had struck a, path, we had struck a pedestrian that ran on the tracks. Um, we get off the train, 
and I'm still in shock because this is what I'm hearing. And then the two chatty ladies that were on the train who were now in front of me exiting, one of them fell to her knees, and I couldn't figure out what the hell happened. But what she had seen was the sight of a uh, the remains of this person, which was only their their leg from the knee down and a Reebok sneaker and a white sock. Unfortunately, it was a really just kind of eerie moment. But I think I think whenever you go on a train, uh, because it's just such a unique way of transportation and, you know, the, the, the movies of over the years that have, there's always a story that takes place on the way. I kind of feel like there's always inspiration. Well, I I always think of uh, the train scenes in films where people are running alongside the train, and usually they jump on without a problem, but occasionally they slip under. Yeah, and that's always on my mind when 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 you're seeing that train come by. And uh, I remember my dad. Um, I guess there was a Hudson News there or something like that in Grand Central when I used to travel back and forth just for that one year uh, before I went to purchase. Um, he got a copy of one of the Paul Auster books. And the Paul Auster book, it was either part of the book or a story where he was at the very track my dad was standing at in Grand Central Station in the book. So there's always these weird little things that happen uh, by train. What You said something. What was the scene at Grand Central like? Well, uh, I got to the station a little bit early because I didn't want to miss the train connecting to Danbury. And that gave me the opportunity to see the brand new uh, Grand Central platforms from the Long Island Railroad, oh, yeah. which, uh, yeah, I'm, I will admit I'm kind of a train buff when they opened the Moynihan Station at Penn Station in the middle of uh, the pandemic. I took the opportunity to wander around that. That was, was really amazing. Yeah, I mean, the building that, that Moynihan's in is, is gorgeous because it's, you know, same vintage as the original Penn. Um, you know, not not the pen that's there now, but um, and then to see how they modernize that into a, a in a way that you know they don't have any benches. I didn't see any trash cans, but other than that, it's a very uh, nice space. And then the same thing in the new Grand Central, no benches and nowhere to throw out trash, um, and uh, very you know antiseptically white. Yeah. Um, and and. You know, you know, New York has built a lot of big new train stations in the last few years. I'm thinking of the World Trade Center at the Path, um, the Fulton Transit Center, um, and uh, I, I think the challenge in all of these spaces is uh, the the economy uh, economizing of the construction. Uh, they want to have these grand, beautiful spaces, but then uh, the low bid contractor comes in and kind of um, you know cheapens what what the yeah, result is what can be in many cases um i like the moynihan station my mother goes through it when she travels to dc to see my brother so it's i've picked her up from there a few times the restaurants are cool it's a it's a different what, what'd you have for breakfast today Ian? you know i uh come on i was planning on getting a bacon egg and cheese sandwich from a bodega uh, but I came across a uh, black seed bagel shop in Grand Central, Ooh. and I do like a good black seed bagel. And and normally, you know, there there's not any by my house, and and so, uh, and you know, normally if, if you go out on a Saturday and Sunday, there's a big long line. <laughs> but at, you know, ten o'clock in the morning on a weekday, it was pretty easy to go in there and grab a bagel and eat that on the train on the way up. You know, I wanted to talk to you. I, I, you were probably supposed to be my very first guest 
uh, when when I came up with the idea for this show, and we just never got there. We got we're in here for episode four. Um, it's exciting. Your book came out, I guess, about a year ago, right? Almost, almost exactly. You're coming up on uh, the one year anniversary, which is also my my son's mm-hmm. second birthday, or it will be his second birthday. Um, and it, it's interesting because uh, you know I've been talking to my agent about getting the book contract uh, when it first happened, and then. Uh, my wife goes into labor, and you know, a couple hours later, uh, baby comes out, and then uh, a few hours after that, I get in my email a contract for the the book, and I, I wrote back, uh, "I'm going to have to get back to you in a few days because uh, we just had a baby," and uh, and a year later, the book came out, and now my son will forever have to share his birthday with the uh, the book. So, I I wanted to talk about it especially because I love how much secret truth. And hidden um, hidden nuggets of, of kind of history and Americana are in this book, Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American, uh, again, which is out, it's been out for a while by Rowan and Littlefield. One thing I wanted to ask you is in terms of the book, um, it's hard to know where to start. It's very dense. Like, like a lot of my favorite books, it's very dense, and there's a lot of reading uh, that, that gives you a... It gives you a route that you might not have normally gotten to on your own in, in, in a lot of ways. What what are the roots of this book for you, this book project? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you talk about the, the, the density of the, the book. A lot of it for me was I was reading things at little snippets, and they weren't telling the full story. So I was really working hard to try to find the full narrative there so that no one felt that they didn't get the full story. And so that really comes back to the the first uh, you know imagining of this book which which happened with my wife and I were eating dinner at a, a red sauce joint she'd been going to since she was a kid um, in the West Village of New York. We're a little bit drunk on a little bit of uh, house red wine. It comes in a big craft. And so it's a little bit more than a bottle. So between two people you're getting pretty pretty toasty. And I had the 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 question was posed of, of essentially where is all this food actually originating from? Because we're you know we're both Italian American uh, heritage, uh, but we'd also both moved to Italy, and so we knew that the food that we had grown up eating and that we were eating in that restaurant was not at all um, represented in Italy today. Um, and so the question that I had was: Was it at one time Italian? Was it something that came uh, from the immigration? process, the experience of, of melting together, um, and who invented it, and why did it happen? And I wasn't finding the answers. <clears throat> I, I got home uh, that night, and I started Googling, again, a little tipsy, so my Googling may have been <laughs> sloppy, but, um, you know, and then I went to the Strand in, the, in New York, I bought a couple books, and they had partial answers. There was like, this thing might come from here, but then they didn't have anything else either way. Um, and then finally, I got to the New York Public Library, which I'm very grateful for um, for the research uh, access that they provide at the public library there. But at that point, I was like, I'm doing so much research here. I'm taking notes. This is really the beginning of a book project or you know, some kind of writing project. And then it, it kind of evolved into a full, a full-length book. Well, that's, that's something that I, I was going to ask you about. Did you sit down and write this book or did you, did you keep extensive notes and start to put little things together? Well, once I decided that I, I wanted to turn it into a book project, 
um, that then I was trying to organize that information. And it was it was a challenge because you you have the idea of sauces, right? So it really started out as like things you put on pasta, right? But then it evolved into the yeah right. So it's like, a beautiful idea. Yeah, uh, and and so from there it evolved into like well okay you can go to a, a red sauce joint so to speak the sort of typical Italian American restaurant from the mid century where red checker tablecloth bottle of Chianti and a straw uh, bottle breadsticks on the table that sort of thing and that's a pretty standard kind of menu across the country right. And so I was like, what are those other items on there? And then you get to chicken parmesan, you get to, um, you know, uh, going back a hundred years ago into things like uh, uh, fra diavolo, uh, lobster fra diavolo, which now is often either seafood generally, not just lobster or shrimp diavolo. Um, and so all of a sudden I was like trying to organize these notes. I, I distinctly remember the challenges of um, creating file, a file structure, right? Like, uh, do I do it by sauce? Do I do it by year? And initially, the original book was conceived of uh, from a standpoint of recipes. So organized by type of sauce, type of um, cooking, lasagna, pizza, parm. Um, and and then the, the first draft that evolved from that wasn't really telling a story. It was more like a lot of short articles that were tangentially connected because they're all related to the idea of the red sauce joint, but um, didn't really have a, a through narrative. And so actually an, um, an agent who I had submitted a query to had read that draft of the manuscript and she had some suggestions on, you know, she, she was like, I, I can't represent it the way it is now. Um, but I, you know, if you reconstruct it into the, more of a linear narrative, that might give it the cohesion it needs. And you know, the, your first thought is, oh no, she's wrong. And then and then you have that moment of like, oh, maybe she's not. What if I try it out? Right, and this so, has happened to me for sure. I'm in the middle of something like this. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so I'm going along, I'm start reconfiguring it. And now all of my file structure makes absolutely no sense whatsoever because I've originally put all the, the research and notes based on the type of food rather than by the year the food came came about or came to America or came became part of that red sauce tradition. And so now I had to reorganize all those notes and then on top of that reorganize the manuscript. So there's a lot of um, cutting a piece of it, putting it back together in a new way. And um, and then finally there was a, the, the narrative did evolve of how we went from, you know, the late 19th century with the first of the, the immigrant, immigrant wave uh, beginning in the 1880s, of Italians coming here, and how that evolved into them having restaurants and why they started having restaurants. And then the story of why those restaurants needed to start appealing to more than just Italians and how that then influenced the foods. You know, so like chicken parm is essentially a, you know, or veal parm is essentially a cutlet of meat that's been fried and covered in sauce and cheese. But what was happening at the same time um, that that evolved is uh, in the United States, German restaurants were very popular. And what do German restaurants have? They have a schnitzel, right? Right. And so what is a parm but a, a schnitzel that has been covered in tomato sauce, which comes from the southern Italian traditions, has uh, you know, a rich, you know, big chunk of cheese on it. 
um, which really is, is an evolution of um, the access to those kind of calories in the United States. And so you have all those things converge. And by the 1930s, particularly in New York, but um, you know, it kind of emanates out from there, veal parm is basically a, you know, entirely associated with Italian cuisine in America, which is really Italian-American cuisine. Um, so, yeah. So I found that linear story by rewriting it, and that was a tough process. But well, well, there's an interesting timeline that I think you kind of um, articulated it, it throughout the book. Like, you know, reading the book, it makes sense that World War II is this era where Americans uh, really encounter and fall in love with Italian food, particularly something like, I guess, pasta carbonara. What, what can you kind of tell us about that era that was so important to Italian food as we know it today? Well, so there are a couple of factors there. Number one, um, for Americans... It was really the exposure to a different type of cuisine. You know, uh, millions of Americans went to Europe. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean they were all eating Italian food. A lot of them did, but not all of them. Um, but what it really did, it was open those soldiers up to uh, different kinds of food experiences. They, you know, they went from eating what mom cooked, which was probably what their grandmother cooked, to being forced to eat all sorts of different ethnic cuisines in Europe. And then technically a lot of them um, did end up eating things like pizza and spaghetti when they were in, um, in Italy. And, uh, and so, and then on top of that, the military itself was influential. So U.S. military uh, put together a field cookbook for their chefs, which included, uh, I, I do like this, there was two ethnic foods or what we would consider ethnic food, Italian-style meatballs. And they also had a Chinese-American uh, um, noodle dish. And, uh, and outside of that, it was mostly just uh, uh, Northern European uh, foods that were not considered ethnic at the time, largely because uh, Americans saw themselves as Northern European. And, uh, but in that, that, that field cookbook, it was um, these two dishes that were uh, included. And I think that helped make soldiers more accepting of, of those foods. And so when they came back, you know, they wanted them. They went out to Italian restaurants and they went out to Chinese restaurants. And uh, the, the third element there is um, the rise of the convenience food craze of the 1950s. That A lot of emphasis was happening in the post-war uh, suburban kitchen where uh, how do we make the homemaker's life easier? Right. And so, you know, you have eventually the introduction of microwave. Appeal to the one who was going to the supermarket. Exactly. And and who's going to have to cook it and who is going to have to right. deal with. And like all, all of that uh, house cleaning, you know, uh, even, you know, caring for the exterior of the house. Um, that those were things that were like, we have tools to do this. We have a, you know, dishwashers and home appliances. And, um, you know, so like sort of the. Tabletop appliance revolution was happening a little bit before that with the electric revolution. Like, you know, the electricity allowed um, all sorts of things to be created. But before the war, you had the Depression. So not everyone was having access to these tabletop cheap electronics. After the war, you start getting more of that. Um, and then on top of that, you have things like the uh, frozen food. And that was a huge element for lasagna and pizza. Well, that's all I was just about to ask you. It seems like you contend that... Like, and. In a lot of ways, it makes total sense. 
that lasagna first became popularized in America um, through like kind of a frozen food option. Yeah. So um, obviously Italian-American restaurants had some form of lasagna um, before the war. But in between 1945 and, you know, so post-war and early 1950s, lasagna really becomes a much uh, broader uh, segment. And you can see that in what I call the women's magazines. Is this how the New York Public Library actually has this wonderful database of things like Reader's Digest. Uh, they've put together as the um, women's magazine collection. And in that, multiple times, both lasagna and pizza have articles written about them um, how to host a pizza party, how to, how to make a lasagna. And included in that back then were uh, pronunciation guides for both lasagna and, and <laughs> pizza. Yeah, you know, imagine a world where you don't know how to say pizza, right? Wow. And, um, you know, so <laughs> it was really introducing women uh, particularly uh, to the idea of that. And, like, the idea of having a pizza party is great. You go to the store, you pick up the pizza, you bring it home. You have a sleepover with your friends, that sort of thing. And that, that speaks to that like movement towards convenience, takeout food, right? Uh, pizza was very conducive to that. You put it in a box, you put it in your car, you drive to your little suburban house. And it, and it fed town. multiple people. And it could feed multiple people, yeah. Um, another chunk of the book deals with different types of pasta. Uh, you know, Talk about the research. What goes into that tracking and identifying the, the roots of these um, different shapes? So uh, there is one book in particular, um, the Encyclopedia of Pasta, uh, by, I, I'm going to mispronounce her name. Um, it's a, anyway, it's a great resource. It's about a thousand different pieces, you know, pieces of pasta, and the shapes and sort of the history. Um, but in addition to that, there's also one of my favorite things available online, scanned by the um, trade organization, uh, old copies of the um, New Macaroni Journal. Wow, the New Macaroni Journal. What was this? So uh, the New Macaroni Journal was first published around 1919, and it was a trade publication for... Uh, Tell me you've, like, eBayed copies of these. I, I have not physically held a copy of this, um, but they are electronically available as PDFs, and they're... Uh, uh, is this through the New York Public Library also? This, no, this is literally from the, the organization um, that the macaroni... Um, Get the name of the organization. There, basically, uh, there were so many manufacturers of macaroni and, and, and dried pasta in the early 20th century. They formed uh, a trade organization to sort of promote both their their product, help grocers sell it, become an avenue for advertisers to connect with grocers. So, if you were owned a grocery store, right, you might subscribe to this journal or maybe even get it for free, um, and you would learn about different kinds of macaroni, different ways of selling macaroni, different manufacturing processes. And they were a fascinating journal because they talked about all sorts of different pasta evolutions. Um, the box, you know, we all buy pasta in the box right now, right? That was a, a thing that was very new in the early uh, 1920s. Before that, pasta macaroni, dried macaroni, was sold basically by the barrel or crate. You would go to the grocer and you would say, I would like a pound of pasta. You would have two pounds of pasta. He would scoop it out with a giant scoop, put it into a bag for you, weigh it out, and you could buy as much or as little as you wanted. But in that, in this uh, new macaroni journal are advertisements for the first cardboard boxes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're, they're a fascinating element in the history of, of pasta because um, a lot of the legends um, that we think of with macaroni come from that. So uh, 
I think a lot of people have heard that Marco and Polo went to China and discovered pasta. <laughs> this is not entirely true. Uh, it was mostly invented probably for the new macaroni journal because they had this whole section with tall tales. Again, they're trying to sell macaroni. So how do you, how do you make it interesting? How do you make it um, different and new? You create stories. And so one of the stories is about Marco Polo going to China, coming back to Italy and bringing pasta or macaroni with him. Um, it, Italy definitely had macaroni before that um, <laughs> and, and different kinds of pasta. What he probably found in China, which was not something you had in Italy, were um, noodles that were made from things that were not durum wheat. So rice flour or uh, other starches. I've seen, um, I think yam starch was used in a lot of cases, different, different grains generally, um, in part because they didn't have a hard durum wheat as you had in Italy. Um, and that's really where you get that nice tensile, the uh, sponginess of, of pasta, that stretchiness, the gluten comes from durum wheat. Um, and so, anyway, uh, it was one of the ways that the Macaroni Journal was creating tall tales. Uh, no, yeah. but I mean, that, that's really interesting. And I, I think that probably a lot of common knowledge comes from inventions like this, inventions like the story of Marco Polo. And, yeah, and, and, so, and then it, it filters down in, into legend so that every school child in America will come and tell you Marco Polo invented spaghetti or from China, right? And, and you know, Obviously, the, that is built on, and in in a way, maybe even one of our famous dishes, spaghetti meatballs, um, has origins in this journal. Um, so Rudy Valentino is a uh, famous singer uh, and movie movie. Uh, Rudolph Valentino. He um, he died tragically of of a weird disease in the in the twenties. Otherwise, he may have blown up even bigger. But he was a heartthrob and. Uh, the New Macaroni Journal published uh, two of his favorite recipes, so they claim. Um, the one is for spaghetti and tomato sauce, and the other is for meatballs. And they're published right next to each other. This is like great celebrity fluff of the day, <laughs> like the original. Oh, absolutely. What's this celebrity's favorite bowl of pasta? Exactly, exactly. And, um, and then right around that same time, um, the American Beauty Macaroni Company begins advertising their spaghetti. And on the, the advertisement is a plate of spaghetti surrounded by meatballs, just as we think of, just like Lady and the Tramp is eating in 1955. <laughs> so Great visuals there. Yeah. Um, and so it's right around there that, that we evolve from uh, spaghetti without meatballs to having it being a very standard part of the experience. Um, and, you know, whether, whether we can say Rudy Valentino's uh, recipe, or what they credit to him, is is the reason. I think it's more that you know marketing was a, playing a big role um, in defining what that is, and and marketing historically has played a huge role in defining Italian American cuisine, even to the idea of there being Italian cuisine generally. Because you know, remember, Italy was only united in 1861, right? And even in in by 1880s, when when the first waves of immigration are beginning, people didn't identify as Italian. They identified as Neapolitan or Roman or, or whatever town or region they came from. But in the early 20th century, to market products, people would market it as Italian product. And because it was impossible to have 
you know, 40 different kinds of right. olive oils marketed. This simplified the packaging. Yep. And so that really helped create Italian identity at that time. Um, and, and, you know, and this has been recurring throughout uh, the 20th century of what is Italian American cuisine is what marketers have deemed it um, going, going into. Totally. This. And that's being reinvented over and over today, especially by, um, you know, these evil fast food brands that love to, uh, kind of appropriate Italian uh, Italian culture my, and Italian food. My favorite one of those, which I, I didn't actually write about in the book, very briefly, uh, I believe it was Burger King, had a veal parmesan sandwich. I remember, do you remember how, I was asking someone if they remembered those terrible commercials where the guy walks in and he asks the person in Burger King where the gondola is. <laughs> I was like, this is just terrible. You know, this is just really bad. Um, something that, you know, reading through the text, I was like, wow, this is going to strike people um, as, as a new way to look at uh, the, the roots of Italian food or where it comes from. Tell us, like, what what about Greece and North Africa? Uh, what was the connection there that you found? Well, so Greece, uh, in ancient Greece, before the Roman Empire, controlled parts of southern Italy called uh, Magna Graecia. Right. Um, and so ancient ancient Greeks have a big influence on that cuisine. Um, and it's even possible that the word pizza is derivative of uh, Greek pita. Right. So um, uh, when you get into linguistics, you, you go back and, you, you know, there's no definitive um, signs. There's other influences on that word and that type of bread. Um, but that's po one possible way. Um, and so that's a really interesting way because that's really coming up. And then, you know, it was 2,500 years ago that this was happening and that we still feel those effects. Um, North Africa is, is an interesting uh, influence because it has a big influence over Sicily. You know, Sicily and, and Naples um, both go through many different uh, periods of rule. So at one point, um, the Spanish are in there. Another point, the, um, the various... Uh, Middle Eastern and, and North African, uh, the Moors are, are, are crossing over in, into Sicily. And so macaroni is a, is a big one that might come from, uh, not from North Africa, but it was essentially uh, the ability to store flour, uh, whether it's in the desert or on the ocean as a, as a sailor, um, is, you know, flour doesn't store very well, but dried macaroni does. And, and Sicily was a great climate to grow wheat and then more importantly to dry out macaroni. Right. And so with these, these conquering cultures, when they controlled Sicily, a lot of it was how do we extract value from this island? One way was dried macaroni. Um, another one was olives. Um, I believe the Greeks actually uh, were instrumental in uh, planting olive trees in the south of, of Italy as well. Um, and so all of these things are, are how are like the origins and the roots of Roman cuisine, which is the origins and roots of Italian cuisine, which is really the basis of Italian American cuisine. So Ian McCallan, our guest today on Public Reading Club Red Sauce, is his book, How Italian Food Became American. Ian, uh, I want to ask you, there, there's a lot of ideas in your book and th there's a lot of... Um, you know, there's, there's so many contributions and, and different ways to analyze how things evolved. Was this, was this 
this book that we have here today, is this, is this a historical book? How do you describe it when people want, want you to put it in that box that, that we're so often asked to put our work in? I mean, I definitely think of it as a food history. Um, I also wanted to find the, the stories that were not necessarily true and include them as a, this is what one theory is. It's probably not accurate. But you should know about it because, one, it's an interesting story, right? Um, and two, if I don't mention it, then, then you think I've, I've ignored it. And one of my favorites of that is um, Carbonara, right? So very unclear origins and, and even a, there's a more recent book, believe it or not, about the history of pasta that came out this past year uh, by Luca Cesare, who talks about Carbonara. And I was very happy to see that we, we don't really have any contradictions. Um, he's a little bit more skeptical of um, some of the, uh, one of the claims by a chef um, who uh, claims to have in invented Carbonara. But my favorite sort of myth with Carbonara is uh, there is a, a political organization, a secret society, essentially, called the Carbonari. Um, who were involved in anti-fascist behavior, so they were really into uh, ensuring the republic survived. And um, so one of the one of the suggestions was that Carbonara evolved from like their secret meetings, and it was a food they would serve at their at their clubhouses. Um, I don't think that is accurate at all, one hundred percent. But it's a really fascinating story of like this political group. This Interesting. yeah. And so I wanted to include that and just mention it's probably not true, but you should know about it. Just in case. I think that this is something I, I'm really interested in, actually, as a writer myself and as a journalist. I think that that stuff is so fascinating. Um, I, I really, really believe that sometimes these stories that are not true or they're slightly true are things that people cling to sometimes in many ways, in good and bad ways. Um, like if you think about uh, just even some local folklore or uh, anything like that, I, I, I think that things don't necessarily have to be true to be A, believed, and then B, kind of interesting fodder for your brain. You know? Well, I mean, the other thing with this is how sometimes these foods do enter into the ecosystem, right? Right. So... And I think a really good example of this is amatriciana, which is a classic, one of the classic sauces of Rome. And and so, you know, speaking of carbonara, amatriciana is, is part of the same family of sauces. So you, um, you have cacio e pepe, which is uh, pepper and, and cheese. You build on that and add bacon or, or uh, cheek jowl, uh, pork jowl, um, and you have grigia. So, and then you, from that sort of base, you can either get carbonara by adding an egg or amatriciana by adding uh, tomatoes. So amatriciana is, is not super popular in the United States in, in before the war. Um, you know, you probably could find it in uh, Roman restaurants in, in, uh, in America, but it wasn't widespread. By the post-war period, it was, um, and I say post-war period, but really it was uh, 1952, 1953, that, um, you probably could find it in a lot more red sauce joints because what happened is uh, the zoo in Rome had an elephant and the uh, poor elephant died. And the reason the elephant died is they would feed it spaghetti. Wow. And, and <laughs> yeah, and it's tragic, 
But poor Remo loved his spaghetti amatriciana. And um, there was a news story about this elephant. It died right around Christmas. And you could see it in the wire, the wire services all across the United States for the next six weeks. Every, every, it, you know, it really, you know, muddles your, your, your search results because it kept coming up for weeks afterward <laughs> and, and, and different newspapers, but same, same story, just, just repeat, repeated over and over again. And it was really that, that introduced, um, Americans to Amatriciana and like, you know, you read about this sauce, all of a sudden you want it. Right. Yeah, sure. And, and like I said, you probably could find it in, on menus at, at restaurants especially those that were roman but it was something that really became more widely available in that period and i would suspect it's because poor remo the elephant in the, in the roman zoo um and so that's a way where like one of these stories has impacted um you know life in real you know in the real world one thing i wanted to ask you and i don't quite remember how much of it is touched on in the book or how you personally feel about it but what role does the mom-and-pop pizzeria have in the evolution of Red Sauce? It would appear to me that there's this, there's, this, there's this world out there that kind of creates Italian-American food. And then it's not actually kind of christened, if you will, until you see it in the mom-and-pop pizzeria, until the mom-and-pop pizzeria makes the mozzarella stick, until the mom-and-pop pizzeria... Um, makes fried raviolis, which we just had here down the street uh, at TK's uh, in Danbury uh, for lunch. What well, the question is? How how do these how do these places kind of go about co-signing these things that are kind of inventions? Well, I think the the important thing to realize is pizza as we know it today, ubiquitous in every everything from the mall to the airport to your corner store. It wasn't always like that. A hundred years ago, up until the 1920s, 1930s, you really only could get it in uh, really limited Italian neighborhoods. Usually um, the local grocery or bakery would have it. Um, Lombardi's, uh, the famous, uh, the quote, first pizzeria in America, was really a grocery store that sold um, probably initially cold pizza. Um, And then from there, interestingly enough, the early pizza makers in New York did time there, right? So Totono's and Coney Island, uh, sure. Patsy's, John's. Um, and then uh, a little bit later, um, oh, I guess concurrently in Trenton. I want to do a shout out to Trenton, New Jersey for having an old pizzeria as well. And by the way, listeners, Totono's in Coney Island is a clue as to one of our upcoming show guests. Go on. All right. So, um, and then uh, New Haven uh, for sure. And then it sort of spreads uh, after that. But, you know, um, what changed... And, and this is where the the mom and pop pizzeria comes in, is those were all um, coal fired ovens, right? So uh, you had a hard coal that you had to put into the oven, get it hot, keep it hot, and if you if you let it get cold for more than a day, it would take a couple of days to get back up to temperature. After the war, Ira Nevin, uh, uh, avionics uh, avionics engineer from Westchester County, grew up um, the the child of bricklayers. So his father and grandfather made uh, ovens. And so he comes along, he makes the gas-fired pizza oven, which uh, known as the Baker's Pride. Yes, um, a re- this is a revolutionary thing. Oh, and absolutely. And I, so- I just want to mention that Capri Pizza in Bethel is the only pizzeria I know within 
driving distance of here, Western Connecticut State University, WXCI 91.7 Studios, is Capri's Pizza that has the, the Baker's Pride. And the, the, the listen, that's the best pizza around here. So the Baker's Pride, uh, you know, poor Ira Nevin didn't patent the original version. Ugh. So he gets a couple knockoffs, but he does it keeps him making more and more of these. And so at that point, that's when you start getting these neighborhood pizzerias, um, you know, as depicted in um, uh, all sorts of uh, films. Uh, uh, I'm blanking on, on what I was going to name, but uh, where you. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, Moonstruck is it? No, that was that was uh, uh, the one the one in Bedside. Anyway, do the right thing. Do the right thing. There you go. Right, classic example of walking into a pizza neighborhood pizzeria. Yeah, and you know, particularly in New York, but in other cities um, on the East Coast, wherever the Italian Americans are, you get these mom, mom and pop shops. Um, also, Chicago. Um, similar type situations, although you're you're more likely to have uh, more Italian deli. But in essence, all of these shops, uh, or the good ones at least, will serve you an Italian hoagie, right? Or Italian submarine, Italian hero, depending on grinder if you're from New England. Yeah, over uh, here it's a grinder. I learned uh, the hard way. I, I can't believe I just said hoagie. That's uh, South, rough. As a South Jersey thing. And um, so tip my hat to all my friends in South Jersey who've uh, gotten me saying that instead of, uh, instead of hero. Um, so, uh, and then you... A lot of the time, they also have the classic red sauce menu, right? You can get pasta there. You can get most of the the red sauce pasta sauces. You can get a, a chicken parm, a, a, a veal parm, meatball parm, and so in a way, you know, a lot of them have prepared foods, and that is in a way a preservation of the classic red sauce joint. Like the you know, the red sauce joint is closing around the country, yeah, or it's going upscale. You know, there are a the few that are left. Um, or the more modern ones tend to be upscale. You know, Carbone is a very expensive uh, place to eat. Don Angie, very expensive place to eat. You can't even get in. Right? right. But you can go to your corner pizzeria and you can probably get spaghetti and meatballs, a tortellini, Alfredo, whatever. Right, lasagna. Yeah, exactly. And and so to me, they're, they're both you know, the preservationist of that red sauce um, tradition. And and the ones who approve of it. And they, the interesting thing is how the confluence of different foods here. You know, you go into a New York pizzeria, you probably can get a Jamaican beef patty, right? Yeah. A Jamaican beef patty with mozzarella cheese, too. And, and pepperoni, the way I like it. Oh, yeah, there you go. And, and so that's the confluence of the different ethnic groups in New York coming together to improve food, right? Yeah, oh, definitely. And I can just, just for the sake of this conversation, a lot, while reading the book, I was brought back to my own days growing up in the Italian-American community in New York City, and I had a, basically some relatives of mine had a pizzeria uh, above which my grandmother and my aunt lived, and they actually resisted the temptation to serve anything but pizza probably until about 19, maybe 1994. Really, they didn't serve anything between 1969 and 1994 but pizza. So imagine thinking about that in today's terms where, again, and we're actually talking about like pizza with limited toppings, not the pizza that we talked about today. The pies, they would come out plain, nothing on it, and, you know, there would be mushrooms, there would be pepperoni, there would be 
uh, you know, the different things that they put on the pies, but never did they serve a buffalo chicken slice or anything like that. Even after they started serving dishes, uh, you know, uh, uh, everything we've mentioned already in pasta vazul and, 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 and different things like that, you know? Well, I always, I always think of the, um, my hometown pizzeria, uh, Shout out to El Palazzo. Um, Hi, El Palazzo. Uh, the, these guys. Enrico uh, Palazzo. <laughs> well, uh, so these guys started out as a hot dog stand that they had bought, wow. right? And so they served pizza there. And it was basically a shack um, that at some point, maybe I was 10 or 11, they started expanding it into truly the, the palace, as El Palazzo is, is translated to. Um, and what they did is they built a formal dining room on one side. The casual pizzeria on the on the other side, and actually uh, they had a ballroom uh, upstairs and, and a ballroom in the basement, so you could rent out different size spaces if you wanted to have your wedding, your christening, or whatever uh, event. I think my um, my ten year high school reunion was was in the the ballroom. Wow! But at the Palazzo, yeah, huh? yeah, classic classic red sauce place in the sense that you could get all all of traditional veal parmesan, um, you know, spaghetti and meatballs, but. Uh, also adapting to modern times, you know, they would get um, what, I, you know, what has since been described today as northern or authentic Italian food, which I think, I, you know, I take issue with the term authentic, right? right? Authenticity is really whatever you're eating. And it's totally in the eye of the beholder. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, you go to Italy today and you say, I'm, I'm here for authentic Italian food. And, you know, and you go eat at a place that has, you know, a cheeseburger. Is that authentic? Because it's being served in Italy or is it inauthentic because you're having an, an American cheeseburger, you know? And I think burgers are originally from Germany, aren't they? Uh, they're actually in a, an invention in the United States with uh, dubious ties to, uh, to Germany. Um, but yeah, so dubious to say the least. <laughs> I love to investigate the dubious. Um, and what are your favorite Italian foods that are largely American inventions? I mean, I will always say yes to a good vodka sauce. Um, penne alla vodka, sure. Uh, I do love tortellini alla vodka, which is like really breaking the rules because you've got <laughs> a big stuffed pasta covered with a big creamy sauce. It's, just, it's too much, but I love it. I've had fettuccine, like, well, I guess I've had uh, tortellini alfredo. Mm, oh yeah, absolutely. No, and that's the other thing is like a true Alfredo sauce is really just cheese and butter, which is spectacular. But an Americanized version of Alfredo sauce, uh, like something you would get at the Olive Garden or or a variation of that, um, the, the, actually one of the early um, Americanized versions of this is from um, the Dutch Pennsylvania Dutch Noodle Company selling trying to sell egg fettuccine. They have a recipe that is easier to, to make because essentially a true Alfredo sauce is, is an emulsion of, of uh, a little bit of pasta water, a little bit of cheese and a lot of cheese and a lot of butter. Um, and it's hard to keep it together if you don't know what you're doing, right? It might break if you have the wrong ratio. Um, whereas the moment you add something like uh, cream or milk, which a lot of the more modern American recipes will have, uh, it's easier to like not fall apart. Um, and then also a lot of them will have um, a cheese, like a softer cheese that has like that stringy feel to it. So um, sometimes it's provolone, but it could just be uh, a plain American cheese that just has that 
uh, that melty quality, mm-hmm. and uh, and so Americans really have made it more like a mac and cheese. But yeah. um, you know, it I really kind of is Italian mac and cheese. Oh, absolutely, like, absolutely, in its own way. Yeah. Um, there's a story in the book about Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford's uh, connection to fettuccine Alfredo. What do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, okay. So. We, we should recognize that even though many Italians today will say Alfredo is, is nonsense, it's not Italian at all, it actually is. It was invented by a Roman chef in, in Rome. Uh, he created it initially to feed his sick wife who had just given birth and wasn't recovering fast enough. She wasn't gaining enough um, uh, you know, uh, strength after, after birth. So uh, what he did was he created the um, pasta, fresh pasta with heavy on the egg yolk, which is why it's golden in color. And uh, he wanted to get more calories in her, but keep keep it easy on the stomach. So he added more butter, which is calorie rich, and more cheese, which is also calorie rich. That creates this very creamy, delicious sauce. She was the one who was like, this is great. You need to put it on the menu of, of your restaurant. Wow. And now this guy, um, the rest of his food was maybe not memorable, but he himself was very memorable. He had the nickname the Maestro <laughs> um, because he would serve uh, Fettuccine Alfredo tableside with a string quartet. Wow! Um, and you know, ta- by tableside, I mean he would mix the pasta with the cheese and the butter right in front of you. And so he had kind of a reputation. It was kind of the kind of place where politicians and celebrities in Italy would go and get their um, eventually their photos would be taken. He had a whole wall of celebrity photos. Um, and then in the 1920s, um, Pickford and Fairbanks get married. They're uh, celebrity movie stars of the time. And uh, they probably found out about this place um, from uh, this restaurant uh, writer um, who had come from a family of, of big um, – showroom style restaurants where dinner and a show type places but uh, those had kind of shut down so he had become um, a food writer and he writes about Alfredo's in Rome for the you know the dinner and a show basically (laughs) and uh, you know and so they go there on the honeymoon and the rumor is they ate there literally every night wow I I don't know if that's actually accurate or or if it's you know modified over time but they ate there a lot on their however long their honeymoon was and they loved it so much they presented Alfredo with a spoon and a, a giant serving spoon and fork that were gold plated. Wow. Um, the Alfredo family claims they still have those and they display them. And uh, and so they're the ones who enjoyed Alfredo's sauce so much or pasta Alfredo. Uh, and then they would serve it at their uh, dinner parties in Hollywood after that. And that helped make it popular. And, and this is a classic like mid-century Italian American food. Um, and uh, you know you go to a, a white tablecloth Italian restaurant in like 1955, and you get an Alfredo dish um, uh, served to you, and and then it, it sort of gets cheaper after you know it's cheapened by uh-huh. mass marketing after that. Well, that's what I was just about to say to you. It's great that you actually bring that up because personally, I love how you mention how many of these dishes um, kind of have the Olive Garden to thank in some ways because I don't think many Americans would have even heard of some of these dishes, fettuccine Alfredo and the different things that they put out through their commercials that probably wasn't, it, in my opinion, wasn't very good when you went to get it at the Olive Garden, but it was something that, it was almost like free education of on Italian food in some ways because I, I you know, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think as small pizzerias like the one that my relatives had for, for a while, um, 
as they evolved their menus, stuff like that was already familiar to a, a wider audience of people. Is is that the kind of way you looked at it, or? Well, I think you, we have to recognize that food evolves, right? The Italian American food that I started writing about in Red Sauce, in the book in 1900, is wildly different than where we're at now, and and some of that is um, what happens when it's commodified, and and while Olive Garden takes you know, a basic Alfredo sauce and adds a bunch of things to it. And then you can get it with chicken and bacon and all these other things to make these monstrosities that are, are frankly delicious in a lot of cases. Right. Um, you know, that's one evolution. And on the other end, you also get fancier evolutions. And, you know, I mentioned Don Angie, um, which is a, a upscale restaurant in New York. Can't get a reservation for, um, they've taken those classic red sauce menu items and, and, upscaled them. They've they've reinvented them into a modern way. And, you know, that's continually happening. If you're not doing that, you don't really have a cuisine anymore. You have an old recipe. And, you know, and having looked at old recipes, an old recipe is, is not very useful or, or good, right? So some of the early recipes, you have to realize people were cooking on open fires, right? We don't cook on open fires anymore, no. right? And and so the recipe is, you know, you, you braise this for five hours on your open hearth, make sure you don't, you know. <laughs> yeah, so we don't do that anymore. And, and, and so what does that look like today where you turn on your gas or electric or induction stove and you have perfect temperature and perfect temperature control. You're not burning anything anymore unless you're, you know, you forget about it, right? Um, and And so, just that is all different. And then access to ingredients, and that's a big part of the evolution of, of Italian-American food, is Italians who were coming in the 19th century and early 20th century were not ever eating meat in their lives. You know, if they were lucky, they would get um, cut, you know, side side cuts or, or, or sausages, which are filled with the worst parts of an animal right. a couple times a year. They come to America... They're eating meat two, three, five times a week. And I always laugh when I hear the Italian steakhouse. Yeah. That that's always kind of funny. Yeah. Well, the I mean, the Italian steakhouse is, is fascinating uh, because it's an, an embrace of that culture, right? right. It, you it's, know, it's kind it, of the the merging of mm-hmm. these two ideas, yeah. kind of the almost the um, the multi course yeah. kind of Italian meal with the way we eat steak in, mm-hmm. in this country. Ian McAllen, author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American, is in the WXEI studios here, 91.7 Danbury Radio. It is great to have Ian here. Ian, um, were there books about food that inspired you to write the book, and then were there books that inspired you as you wrote? So, yeah. I mean, I remember um, the one of the first books I bought uh, – you know, even before I was writing a book, it was just like, let me explore. Uh, I think it's We the Italians. Uh, it was basically a, more of a history of Italian Americans in America. It had, had a little bit of food, but it didn't have a lot. Um, John Mariani's book, um, How Italian Food Conquered the World, is a, a great book and a, an amazing history of how Italian food as a whole category goes from from the peninsula to not just the United States but globally right why we can get pizza in every country and 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 it's interesting I was talking to him after the book came out he he graciously gave me a, a blurb on the back here um, and uh, he was saying he was 
when, when he got the book, he was like, I already wrote this book. Wait, wait, I didn't. It's a very different book because we, we approach this from two different ideas. We're both talking about the history of Italian food. Um, but I really am talking about the history of Italian American food. And he kind of includes Italian American food in the umbrella of Italian food and how that spread across the globe. Whereas I'm really talking about how it evolved in the United States. And, um, his, his book definitely was influential. Um, then, uh, what was it say? Uh, Andrew Smith, uh, who's a food historian. Uh, he wrote a, um, a couple books on tomatoes, which are fascinating <laughs> if you're really into like obscure tomato history, um, and fruit, his, food histories. Um, and so those, those were to me a lot of the sort of immediate, um, influences, but you know, I read a lot of food books, right? Like just, I remember there's a book about cheeseburgers or hamburgers that I read um, when I was trying to conceptualize how to create the, the initial narrative. Um, you know, uh, I'm reading about tacos now. I, I like I like food histories. I think they're they're really fascinating. Champagne. There was a great champagne book I read. That's interesting. Uh, so, talk about finding a publisher for this book. What was the process like? Well, so like I said, the um, the first draft was, was was written in a way that was like recipe based, not linear in time. And I did a, a round of queries, probably 20, 20 or so agents. Um, one of them, a couple of them asked for more. One of them very graciously made some recommendations. Um, and so that uh, I went into the process of revising and I started another round of, um, of queries after I had a whole new draft. And uh, you know, it was one of those moments where I'd sent out, I was going into uh, July 4th weekend um, in the middle of the pandemic in 2020. And, and I sent out maybe early morning query letter uh, to a couple agents, you know, because it's a very draining process. It's like, uh, I used to compare it to online dating where you're like, I think we're going to be perfect. And then they never get back to right, it, right? Right, right, right. Um, this is it. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get married and have children. And, and then it doesn't, nothing happens. Um, and so it's kind of like that with a book, right? Like you're, you find an agent, you read everything you can about them. And you're like, they're going to be the perfect agent. And then they ghost you. Um, but what happened is like a couple hours later, I got a call from uh, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Agent, who's my agent. Um, and he was like, this is really interesting. We have a conversation. Uh, he made some suggestions. He was like, why don't you send it, send me the, the rest of it. You know, um, and we, we went back and forth for a little bit and then, and he started pitching it out. Um, I don't know the, the process after his end of it. I do know, uh, you know, so that was July. You know, the problem with book publishing is it takes so long, right? So I did a round of edits and then he wanted to get out, um, before sort of like the, uh, the cutoff in November. So uh, by the end of the year, book publishers are looking to wrap up ongoing projects and then we'll start again in the new year. So no one wants to query in November, December. And, um, yeah. And then finally I said, uh, he mentioned that an editor was interested and that we were talking about, uh, about what that would look like. And then my son was born and I, a couple hours later I got the contract and, and, and that's how, how that went. There was, you know, as a first time author, you don't have, um, much to talk about in terms of negotiating or anything. It's not like you're Stephen King where you're like, I can guarantee that a million books are going to sell and what are you going to give me in return? It's more like, great, we're going to have a partnership that is mostly, um, you know, me, me providing a book and you providing publishing and, and, um, 
other services other services that go along with that and, and publicity and, and things like that so um yeah we met in a a bar a while back not the first time we met but we met, had a few drinks around christmas time and you said you spoke to a publisher or maybe an agent who said that because you worked in design primarily that you weren't really a writer or how did you feel about that what was what was that story yeah so you know being being in new york and 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 being an aspiring writer um you know i i have known agents i've known uh editors and uh a lot of you know some of my friends who who are agents have said you know they talk about platform and and what that looks like and and you know platform can be you know a million instagram followers but it can also be you know writing uh bylines about a certain um uh, certain topic or in, in in my case now because I've now written a book about food my agents like I, I want you you know you should write more food books because it's easier to pitch you as someone who's written about food because you've already written about food um, if I wanted to write about another topic I would basically be starting from from the beginning again and so that that is one of the challenges of writing any type of book or any topic of a book is you can get pigeonholed into a specific type of um, genre or or area of expertise, and and obviously from the perspective of everyone who's not writing the book, the publisher, the editor, the agent, they're they're looking at it as a product that they can sell, whether it's selling to an editor, or an editor selling to a publisher, or a publisher selling to the general public. Um, and then, you know, even after you've sold it, you have to convince a bookstore owner, a bookstore clerk to put it in the in the bookstore or a librarian to put it in the library. And so everyone's looking at it from that perspective, um, not necessarily of what is going to be a great story, but what is going to be a, a, a product that can sell. And so having some kind of platform and that can be all sorts of things that can be a network of friends. It can be a network of of bylines that you've written on a topic um, that all plays into how um, a book or a book project is seen as viable, right? Um, so, yeah. I, you're, you're also a book critic. What drew you into that type of writing? You know, I will say uh, 14, 15 years ago, before I had applied to graduate school, I, uh, I had not majored in English. And I knew I, need, I was a couple years out of college, so I knew I needed uh, letters of recommendation. So I took a class at Rutgers Nork. It was a an English lit class, and you know I, I was up front with with the professor at the beginning. I said, "Look, I want to apply to the master's in English program. I'm gonna, you know, if I do well, I want a rec letter of recommendation." And I really loved that class. It was uh, Rigoberto Gonzalez, who I believe now is the director of the Rutgers Nork MFA program, mm. and uh, you know. The class was this amazing class on um, what he called the post 9/11 working class novel. So we had uh, five or six novels from uh, writers who were who were talking about class issues through the working class lens, but after 2001. So it was a very last 10 year kind of thing. Um, but what he said early on in that class was uh, he he talked about how critiquing work is a great way of understanding your own work. And then also, he was someone who had come up at a time when newspapers would pay people to review books. So writing book reviews was a good way of like sustaining your own writing. Um, so it was a double a double edged sword where you you both were becoming a better writer, 
and then also sustaining yourself financially. The financial part is less true now. <laughs> yeah, you can say that again. Yeah, but um, but you know, I I realized it was a great way to expand my own understanding of how books were constructed, and you know, build build up networks of of editors. You know, at this point now, you know, I, I do a lot of book reviews, the Chicago Review of Books, um, among other places. But I, I think I've gone through three or four editors there, and um, you know, and one of the editors, uh, this woman, Amy Brady, has her book coming out in, in the summer this year, Ice, the History of Cocktails and Other Things. Um, and it's a fascinating fascinating look. You know, in the same way I'm writing about Italian food, she's writing about the history of ice, which is a very American uh, type of thing. <laughs> um, and and so I'm going to interview her for about her book because and and that's that's how you build that network right you, you don't do that just by being like uh i'm gonna write a book and then someone's gonna interview me right you build on those relationships and so how did the value of a book review or a critique change when you became a first-time author to see other people writing about your work or talking to you about your work is absolutely phenomenal um and then it's the when you're putting something out there, you really have no control over how it's going to be received. And as I found out, it's very hard to get any kind of traction, right? Even when you, um, you know, communicate with booksellers, you know, you I would like to do an event, uh, we don't have time, or we, you know, you have to get in there. So to have someone say, "I'm I'm reviewing this book," is phenomenal. To have someone talking to you about having you know having this conversation now is great because, you know. If you're talking about getting people interested in your work, it's the only way to really do that is to have press and publicity, and it's very hard to, to do. And, and even publishers are, you know, the publicist at your publisher will do, you know, what they can, but they have hundreds of books in a year that they're promoting. So even then, you're kind of like putting yourself out there without a whole lot of superstructure behind you. Um, and so you're, 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 you're doing your best to get people interested um, and so when people are interested, it, it, it's really a good feeling. Let me ask you something as a reader, as a writer. Um, you, you got, and I don't know why I'm asking this. I guess it's I want to ask somebody else about it. Um, but you, know, you got fairly good reviews on Goodreads. It seems like people mostly like the book. Uh, let me ask you, do, how do you feel about something like Goodreads? Is it something that you really feel kind of enhances writing, or is it something that just feels like Yelp? So for me, I personally had used Goodreads for a long time just to track what books I was reading. Now, uh, I will occasionally now give a book a five-star um, because I know people. some people do worry about that, whether it's a, a publisher or, or just booksellers. And you know, one of the best gifts you can give a writer is giving them uh, a high, high regarding review, whether it's a five star or four star, um, and writing something meaningful about it on a place like Amazon or Goodreads, because that does sell books, right? Um, and then you also get some that are, my favorite one star review was, I really wanted to like this book, but it's all filler. One, you know, the back quarter of it or back third of it is all, all these notes, the citations. And all I can think of is, yes, I have citations because I backed up my research, right? This is, <laughs> this is a research book, and, and I, want, I want you to know that it's, it's not just fiction. It's not <laughs> the Marco Polo story. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, what what types of books are your favorite to review? Um, yeah, I have been exploring a, sort of a niche of of uh, short story collections because they often don't get the attention from a lot of other reviewers. So I like being the person who gets to review a short story collection, and I particularly like short story collections that um, deal in sort of the uh, slight science fiction, um, sort of the alternate speculative worlds of, of the future where we collide with technology, where we collide with uh, the, th the existential threat of, of what the future is. Um, and that can manifest in all sorts of different ways. Um, but when I, when I come across those collections, I think th those are some of my favorite. Who are the writers? This is something I always wanted to ask a book reviewer and somebody who's a criti critic of books. Um, who are the writers that you're excited about? Do you, I mean, even if you don't actually physically do it, who do you pre-order in your mind? You know, um, I often try to pre-order the books of of people I know in real life. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of of Tracy O'Neill. I think she has a new book. It, it may not be for pre-order yet, um, but it you know it, she announced that recently. Uh, Alexandra Kleeman, who uh, you know, I think she's on her her third or fourth book, um, and that was her last book came out in the middle of the pandemic, and that was one where I. Um, I went to the bookstore to you know ask that they get it, and and so these are people I've met through being in the New York City literary community, um, and those are the kinds of books that I'm really excited to like pre-order ahead of time, um, you know. And then you feel guilty if you you know see someone in real life and you didn't buy their book, you know. How often do you not finish a book? So traditionally, if I get in, you know, twenty-five to thirty pages, I will I will get through the rest of the book. More recently, since having a, a child, I have a stack of books where I've read 10 pages and then, you know, something happens that is like a baby crying, baby needs milk, baby needs diaper change. And so my overall reading consumption has uh, has left me a, a pile of, of books that, you know, 18 years, I'm sure I'll be able to get to. <laughs> um, tell us, what's next for you, Ian? What, what's, what's the plan now? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I'm working day on... Day by day. Yeah, day by day. I'm, I'm working on another book project, uh, food-related, food history-related. Um, I'm hoping to get that moving forward in a really meaningful way. I have, I have some words down. But, you know, all of these things are a process, and then you think you've written one book, and that, that is the map, but the next book is always different. So um, even though you feel like you've gotten uh, sort of an understanding of how to do this is a totally different experience. And then the other thing is, you know, the most recent thing that I did on on Red Sauce, right? I had a full manuscript and I was making edits. And I, I literally the last thing I did was I put together the index. It was like the the yeah. right before it went to press, right? But I was working with a book of oh, 50, 60, however many thousands of words it is. And and it's very if it has weight. It's a weighty file that you open up. It's dense. And um you know, you look at the word count in, in Microsoft Word, and you're like, oh, I've, I have a book. Right? When you're starting over from the beginning, you're always like zero words, five words, ten words. Right. And, and so you're literally starting from, from nothing again. And it, it's a dispiriting feeling to be like, oh, I have nothing. Right? And then you have you – know, you're, you're gradually 
go up. And I, I always, I've, I've said now, and I think the, the first 10,000 words are the easiest. The last 10,000 words are the easiest. And the, the middle thousands, yeah, those are the hardest. And you can get bogged down and, and you get bogged down in stupid things like, you know, you're doing research and you're suddenly you're looking at, you know, something totally unrelated. You know, somehow you go from reading about food to trains in Tokyo or, you know, some new hotel in Europe or, you know, and, you know, so those tangents really like are, di are distraction and then real life distraction. Well, it's, it's as a writer, I think it's your 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 interests and your curiosity are everything. You mm -hmm. know, if you can. If you can follow those things and turn it into a good article or a good book, uh, I, I think you're doing the job um, that you're supposed to do. And I think um, it's it's one of those things that just keeps evolving. You know, uh, how how long did it take you to write this book? Uh, I think I would say the first from from being drunk at dinner <sighs> to the first draft was about three years, two and a half years. Wow. And then there was a whole nother year of a of another rewrite, and then uh, another year. You know, there's waiting once you once you get um, a publisher who's interested. There's waiting for them to read what you've sent them, and then you know they give you a, a, t a little bit of time to do some edits and revision. And so there's doing that, but there's a lot of waiting, a lot of waiting to hear back from agents, a lot of waiting to hear back from uh, editors, and you know, it's like silence. So how do you fill that time? You know, a lot of, for me, it's a lot of reading, trying to write, trying to come up with ideas for other things. Um, and so you do space it out. It's not, and that's the thing to remember. Writing a book is, you, you can't do it in a day. You know, like you probably aren't going to do it in a week. Yeah, I think I, I think I read Bridges of Madison County was written in six weeks. But, you know, wow. <laughs> you know, but that's like one of those, those things is not real. Like he wrote a draft in six weeks, but how long did it take to go from a draft to right? Um, and and you know from draft to you know best picture or whatever it was or you know, <laughs> it's many years, right? And so um, that's what you always have to really internalize. Is like it is time, and what it really is for writing a book or even a short story is it's not about sitting down and finishing it it's about sitting down every day and doing a little bit and after a month you have a lot right and after a year you have a book right and that that's really the the thought that you have to keep in mind the book is red sauce how italian food became american the author is ian mccallan he was our guest here today on public reading club ian thank you so much for coming to the wxei studios here in danbury connecticut this was one of our best conversations i really do think that um, not, not only did we touch on a lot of fun stuff, but I think a lot of people who listen to the show, and I'm so, sure some people in our MFA in creative and professional writing program will, will be interested in reading, as well as Layla, who introduced us. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, that was, so uh, what Matt's referencing here is uh, early on. We, uh, we worked together on a project I was involved with, and uh, Ian's just a fantastic writer, one of, one, really one of the best I ever had in any type of professional one-on-one uh, -on -one with. So, Ian, yeah. thanks so much for coming. Yeah, up. well, thank you for having me. Thank you. What kind of help does the IRS have for identity theft victims? If you suspect you're a victim of tax-related identity theft, go to irs.gov slash identity theft to learn how to prevent potential refund fraud and protect your tax account. At the IRS, combating tax-related identity theft is a top priority, and we are committed to prevention, detection, 
and assisting victims, and we're working with law enforcement to catch the criminals. For more info, go to irs.gov slash identity theft to learn what the IRS is doing to help protect you. Joining us now on Public Reading Club on WXEI 91.7 Danbury Radio from Western Connecticut State University is an esteemed alumnus of this institution and a fantastic writer who I've gotten to know not only as a teacher but as somebody who's uh, kept up with a lot of his work and his articles and um, there was definitely some excitement in the studio today when I spoke to our engineer Pat Fournette who's here about um, Eric Ofgang's article that recently was released in the Smithsonian. Eric is a Alumnus of WestCon, as I said, he teaches part-time here, but he's also a really prolific journalist who's written for the Washington Post, the Associated Press, uh, obviously the Hartford Current. Um, he worked as a kind of a, at a staff position at Connecticut Magazine, and uh, he, he does a lot of great freelance work, and he does um, some writing for Tech and Learning Magazine in a full-time uh, position. Uh, He's one of everybody in the WestCon MFA pr program's favorite teachers and, and personalities. Eric Ofgang, fantastic writer, is here. Eric, it's nice to have you actually in here. Uh, very nice to be here, and thank you for that introduction. I, I think even my mom is going to be like, that. some of that stuff is over the top. It's all true, though, <laughs> which is the crazy thing. you know. Um, Eric, you had the really fantastic kind of task yeah, I'm sure you pitched it in a freelance capacity to write an article for Smithsonian Magazine about Mr. Electrico, who was allegedly a magician who, in short, inspired Ray Bradbury, the prolific science fiction author and writer. Um, is that the long and the short yeah, of it? Yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong there with that. Yeah, that's all, a, all right, yeah. So tell us what, one of the things that I really wanted to do with the show, and I'm so glad it's Eric Ofgang that's the first person, is I also wanted to open up Public Reading Club to really good articles. I don't think really good articles get enough recognition and use, and the truth is moviegoers should know many of your favorite movies started out as magazine articles. Argo is one of my favorite magazine yeah, articles. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, not, we learned on the Public Reading Club last week that Saturday Night Fever was based on a magazine article that was largely fabricated. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. And then um, even Fast and the Furious, I think, was based there on was the original. Yes. Yeah. Based. Based very on, loosely. very loosely based on a magazine <laughs> article. And this is this has gone on for quite some time. I've... Um, I roughly experienced something like that once with a newspaper article that I wrote. I got to the early stages of it. But but um, I wanted to open up the show to people who just wrote fantastic articles that weren't books, probably could be a book in this case, I think. Um, but uh, tell me a little bit about how you found this Mr. Electrico character and what made you go after it to, to, to write a story about it. So two things for background. I'm a, a big um, science fiction fan. I'm also a magician. Yes. So I always, you know, I, I love magic and, and I love science fiction. I love Ray Bradbury. Um, and it was in the uh, in the summer of 2020, um, you know, during uh, maybe late spring, like during the, the thick of the lockdown, nothing was going on. No one was doing anything. 
Um, just kind of a depressing, strange, eerie Twilight Zone time, tragic time. Um, I was reading, uh, you know, at home on the weekend, reading um, Ray Bradbury's Zen and the Art of um, Writing, which I had read from in the past. And I, I came across, you know, one version of his story of meeting Mr. Electrico as a kid. And he, he says he, after his uncle's funeral, he runs out to this visiting sideshow and he sees this spectacular performance where the guy is uh, getting... Um, shocked by 50,000 volts of electricity and sparks are firing from his fingers and he commands young Bradbury to, you know, quote, live forever. He touches him with this electrified sword and it it has this profound impact on him. And it really started as just this, as I wrote in the article, I was like, oh, wow, that sounds like an amazing act. I wonder if there's some YouTube footage of that. And from that simple, as soon as I Googled it, it turns out that no, there isn't any YouTube footage, and there's no real concrete evidence that Mr. Electrical ever existed, despite the fact that many people have tried to find him, many Bradbury scholars, because like me, they were touched by the story and wanted to find this performer. Um, so that was that was the start of it, and it just kind of, um, I got kind of obsessed with it from there. I decided for no particular reason, but that because I was a, I'm a journalist and I'm a magician, that I was uniquely qualified to look into this. I am not. I might have been uniquely um, interested. Have there been people that said they actually saw him? There have not. There have not been, to my knowledge, a single um, corroborating report. So we're talking about the Bigfoot of magicians here. Yeah, and they refer to it as, um, you know, the the holy grail of sideshow history. Now, as I dug into into it, though, however, I found that there was, you know, the way Bradbury describes the act is so um, vivid and so amazing that it almost sounds kind of undoable. It it sounds, you know, larger than life. Like, I've never seen an act like that. Um, But I did find evidence, and quite a bit, that these acts were quite common. They were mostly, and, and, and this had been sort of seen on the, you know, this wasn't like a um, you know, people knew this, but it, it, there wasn't a lot of connection between the sort of Bradbury scholarship world and the the sideshow uh, circus historians. Um, so I was able to sort of bring the story together between those two worlds. And the acts were common. Um, you know, it, it was almost a, it was a sideshow staple. It usually re- featured a woman. And this is the electric chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would get strapped into an electric chair. They'd be shocked full of um, electricity, and then they would light light bulbs with their hands, or you know, shock people. And you know, it, it varied somewhat, but it was a standard. The electric chair act was a standard part of um, touring sideshows. And I, I would kind of look into it off and on. And then I think I was watching the original version of Nightmare Alley, and then I was just like, oh wow, there's a Miss Electricia. In the, in the movie, um, in, in doing that act. Um, and so the the fact that there was, you know, I found um, a number of women performers going by Miss Electricia. It hit me that Mr. <laughs> Electrico is kind of just the male ver- version of that. Well, it's, or it's like a hodgepodge yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Of, the, of the thing. What I wanted to ask you is, for index purposes, is there stuff you could point to directly in Bradbury's work that was influenced by this? So um, the um, 
Yeah, he when he met Mr. Electro, Mr. Electrico after the performance, he um, Mr. Electrico as part of the Bradbury story supposedly introduces him to the sideshows uh, Tattooed Man or Illustrated Man, um, other characters from the sideshow, and the Illustrated Man, you know, is is a central character in one of Ray Bradbury's collections called the Illustrated Man, which is a great collection of short stories. Um, there's a character named Mr. Electrico in Something Wicked This Way Comes, and it's kind of this dark uh, dark traveling circus that comes to town and, um, you know, is kind of stealing uh, town people's souls. And, he, you know, in, in that he's recast as a villain. But you can see a tremendous influence of this kind of this sideshow circus world in his writing. How much of this was like kind of perpetuated by Bradbury himself after a while? How long did he keep it up, you know? You know, it's funny. One of my friends who I talked in the story, uh, uh, talked with and who helped me kind of find the trace the history of this act, um, a folklorist out of uh, UMass, uh, Stephen Jangarella, says, you know, there's something that occurs where it's it's myth-making for yourself, where you have your own kind of mythology and your own personal folklore. And, um, you know, I, I think that definitely was playing into this. This was a part of his origin story. And I think it may have changed um, with time. But I do think at the same time there was, you know, an essential truth there. I think he wa- did see an act like this. And a lot of, as I researched it, a lot of the elements of the act, it had almost, you know, it was this kind of almost pseudo-spiritual experience for young Bradbury. And that was a common component of these electricity acts because they would, you know, they would often be, have sort of a medicine show or even a healing component. I think it's kind of uh, interesting because me, myself, I had this crazy experience um, in the early or kind of mid-90s there. We went to Florida as a family and I don't know what my father was thinking or it was a good idea or not we went to go see somebody wrestle an alligator and it was really just a ridiculous type of stunt the guy was just that unfortunately the 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 gator looked kind of sedated and and maybe the, the the guy was just kind of poking it with a stick but i remember it so vividly and yet, like, it's almost impossible to Google where I was. I can remember names being called out on the on the PA system and stuff. But it's I think it's these things that stick with you as a writer. Do you have weird things like that that happen to you as a writer, even if you don't want to get too deep into it for obvious reasons, but that kind of stick with you and you always want to do something with it creatively? You know, there's places uh, definitely that you go to, performances that you see that have an impact. I saw a magician named Jeff McBride when I was a kid, and he was just, you know, with this amazing um, uh, amazing magician who did a lot of sleight of hand and card stuff, not like big illusions. I loved that. Um, you know, I remember also seeing as a kid the... Um, the human cannonball at a circus that was like coming through the town and that part you know I didn't care about the animals or the clowns or anything but like the fact that the guy got into a cannon and launched himself across the tent was you know that 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 seemed crazy to me um so that that stood out I haven't you know ever written about it but I like that world um you know certainly a, a lot of things um you know d- different places you go are also so rich I remember going to Coney Island I had um Growing up, hearing about it from my dad and grandfather, and hadn't been there until I was probably a teenager, and it just was, you know, such a a, a wacky place. You could tell it had, you know, it, it was not as as um, 
as big as it once had been. And this was a little bit, I think, before the revival it's seen. But you just had there was a guy like on the corner being like, shoot a live human being and not get arrested. Step right up and like you could pay. And it was basically you paid to shoot a guy with a paintball gun, which seemed not really appealing to me. But um, was also kind of like a very, a very Coney Island esque thing, and that, that always stuck with me. I it's interesting that you said in the story that Bradbury himself wasn't always the most um, reliable narrator because, um, you know, recently uh, the movie Marlowe came out, and um, I think. Um, I got really interested in Raymond Chandler and it seemed like there were a lot of things in his life that he himself made up or or kind of embellished or perpetuated kind of for a very long time. How much of that did you find when you were looking into Bradbury? I you know so he it, it seemed like he would um condense stories and and condense timing. Um one of the things that came up um, that another researcher had found before me with Mr. Electrical is that he always said it had happened on, um, you know, a weekend in September, and it happened after his uncle's death. Well, his uncle didn't die till October. His uncle was murdered in October, um, so the dates, you know, were, were were off, and that 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 could be verified. And there's no record of um, a circus visiting his. Um, his town in that late October period. So there was de- definitely things like that. Um, you know, I, I don't think Bradbury was even conscious of it. I think it was kind of the way, you know, when you have like a, a relative or a friend who's a good storyteller and, you, you know, maybe you've been with them and they tell the story and you're like, well, that's a better version of what happened. Right. It's not exactly, you know, they're exaggerating here and there. You know, it's a central truth um, versus, I guess, you know, that, that literal truth. And as a journalist, obviously, we want that literal truth where you know this we have to verify that it happened not something like that you know that this actually happened how um about writing a piece like this i mean when i think just to talk maybe kind of to speak to some of the writers out there and i always try and tell writers um recently spoke at a college um a couple of different colleges and you know some of the students were curious about you know, maybe podcasting or maybe or maybe doing a series of articles. But I told them, do something that could be complete. You know what I mean? So to complete this article, what something that was based on stuff that happened, I mean, are we talking 90 years ago? These events might have taken place 80 or 90 years ago. Um, what do you do in terms of a writer today to kind of even, if, if, if there's a, there's a young writer out there who's like, hey, I have a great idea for an article. I don't know who I would interview for it to gather facts. I mean, what, what were the first thoughts that came through your head? Obviously, you've been doing this a long time, but, you know. You know, the, the, there's... Teaching uh, moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, a couple things. I mean, I, I think the biggest thing for me with this type of story was realizing that, like, I could tell it, that I didn't have to be afraid of telling a big story. Um, this one, actually, I had some, I think, argument for why I, I should be the one to tell it. But, um, you know, I, I think that was a big thing for me. So that just kind of that idea that like, you know, oh, I'm a local journalist or I'm this type of journalist. I, I can't take this story on. I, I think you can. So anyone can. Um, then, you know, to get more concrete beyond that, um, you know, you, you often start with the people who have already done the research. You know, you're looking, that's part of finding both 
what you need to find for the story and, you know, what, what your angle might be. You know, if, if I had Googled this and found out that, yeah, it was a big mystery for 20 years and someone found Mr. Electrico, you know, that might have been the end of the story. You know, so it was reaching out to people who had looked into it. I mentioned I reached out to a friend of mine who uh, is really good at researching these kind of things and asked him if he had any ideas. And he put me on to this, you know, other magician um, who had predated Mr. Electrical. So so that kind of, um, you know, talking to the the experts and then sort of looking beyond that too. Um, I subscribe to a couple different newspaper databases. One of them is newspapers.com, and that gives you, um, you know, a real, a real good starting point for history stories. You know, you could search terms and quickly find, um, find, find things. It was a little trickier in this case because I had to find access to Billboard magazine, which was the big entertainment industry uh, magazine of the day. Um, and that was where the information about a lot of these acts, the most information about a lot of these acts were. That, about these live kind of sideshow acts. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, that's not a place. Eric Ofgang with us um, on WXEI 91.7, Danbury, Connecticut. Um, before I let you go, Eric, you know, when you look at something like this, you've already done the work, there's kind of a, two, uh, kind of a two-pronged question. First po- part is, as a writer and a writing teacher, and something that I, I even as a student here myself, I've maybe try to encourage some of the other students with is like if you know something like magic if you know something like bartending if you know something like perhaps DJing like young Patrick here knows uh, this is the place to start your writing career if you're interested in writing unless I'm not thinking of it the right way so yeah I, I, I 100% agree I think there's something you know I, I and that's actually something I didn't realize for a while I think I thought like you know if had I had to be I'm separate too, right? yeah, yeah I'm too close to it I shouldn't you know like I, I shouldn't almost like kind of like I, I can't cover magic because I'm a magician and <laughs> that would make be a conflict of interest it wouldn't be but oh. you know that, that kind of thinking where it's um, so yeah I, I agree I, I think you should look for you know the stories that you're uniquely qualified to tell the flip side of that which is almost kind of that I also think is true is sometimes there's you just have a story idea and you're not you know the person to tell it at all but that's kind of the beautiful thing about journalism where you could become that person through the research and through the process of reporting it um, so I, I, I think you could be open to that possibility too. There's well, yeah, you shouldn't you shouldn't shy away from things, but at the same time, like a great way to get going is to start with stuff that you know, subject matter that well, you know, you know. Yeah, and the other thing, uh, my friend and uh, you know, an editor I still work with at Tech and Learning Magazine, Raven DC, always says is that a lot of times a big problem he sees with writers is that they'll come with stories that there's someone theoretically out there wants to read, and it's like it's not me or you, but someone will want to read this story and it you know it sounds simple but you know it really does have to be a story you would want to read right and that's what with this mr electrical story it was a, it was a tough sell because it's a quirky odd story but i sort of trusted i was like you know i'm so interested in this there's going to be other people it's not no, going to be i thought it was really provocative story and i think i think i'm you know i uh, i say i think i say this on every uh, show I go to the movies every week and I am very interested now more than ever not even as a writer just as a consumer um, someone who eats this media uh, weekly daily at times uh, where do these stories come from last night I saw Operation Fortune with uh, you know 
Jason Statham and and, and these other people, uh, Carrie Elways, and um, you know, I, I guess it was just an original screenplay. But I was kind of wondering, I was like, is, is this some old uh, British spy movie that I never heard of? <laughs> I'm very interested in that. And um, a week before that, it was Cocaine Bear. You know what I mean? <laughs> so this Mr. Electrico to me, again, just the way that Hollywood takes things and just the way that um, I think a lot of good novelists, I mean, th this might be a great novel for somebody to write, like the Mr. Electrico novel that 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 uh, you could, you know, uh, a great writer named Jerry Stahl who wrote Permanent Midnight and, and many other uh, books and uh, screenplays and stuff. He, he wrote a book that kind of fictionalized the life of fatty arbuckle yep yeah yeah no i i agree and if there's any um hollywood producers listening i'm you know i'm open to uh exactly. to calls uh you what's know. your cell number <laughs> yeah yeah uh, I, I think jason momoa would be a natural to play me right in the, in the, exactly that's what everyone's always saying I, I don't really see it but people are just telling me that oh my god uh, it's um it's pretty much i i do think that stories like yours it could make a great book. It could make a great um, movie or anything like that. But uh, just, you know, um, in addition to everything that uh, Eric does, he teaches and all this other stuff. But the, before we let you go, anything you're working on that you want to mention that, that that's in the works? or I've got a couple things. I'm doing a lot as we were talking, as we were walking in. I'm doing a, a lot of uh, stories about chat. Uh, GPT, which is um, something that, you know, I, I've been focusing a lot on its implications for education, which it has a lot of. But I think it, you know, it, it has the potential to change society, not necessarily for the better, possibly <laughs> for the better. And it's, you know, it's just this intriguing uh, world. There's um, a group of uh, people I started following on Twitter for research purposes um, that, you know, are, are convinced, fully convinced that AI has... Um, sentience um and it's not something i've i've yet figured out how i'm gonna approach but I, i'm i'm curious by that um and uh i i don't agree with that assessment by the way but um, i'm fascinated by it well you know what it is it's just we're, we're in an era where um this type of advancing technology is so ubiquitous and it's like it's it's, it's kind of being produced every day and uh i'm not necessarily scared of it but i don't I don't necessarily, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, I think I, uh, I'm i still going to write no matter what happens with that. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't think it will ever, um, at least not in the foreseeable future, be a threat to any of the kind of writing we're talking about on this show where it's deep and from the heart and things like that. You know, I, I think some of the, the clickbait, SEO-friendly stuff that's out there, you know, it, it might threaten a few of the uh, content marketing typewriters eventually, you know. The very Mike. last interesting nugget we're, we're going to let you wrap about because we do have to sign off right now, but um, thanks so much for coming. Uh, you're teaching a beer-making class or history of beer? A history of beer class. Yeah, I'm going to be teaching that at uh, University of Hartford. Um, it's going to be three sessions. I'm actually teaching it with my friend who I mentioned, uh, Stephen Jancarella, who um, teaches a class at UMass called The Folklore of History. And it's just going to be going into the origins of beer and the ancient world and then also just right up through modern times and also you know colonial connecticut um well i, I was doing some research for it recently and uh someone in new haven who was accused of witchcraft what she was accused of was awesome. spoiling um one of the early residents of new haven's beer um wow that that's pretty cool i mean 
You get, I'm going to have to like try and sneak into the class or get the cliff notes from somebody. <laughs> but Eric Ofgang uh, really had so much fun checking out your article in the Smithsonian about Mr. Electrico. You will be back on the show when your next book comes out. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to go very quickly into our book recommendations that was submitted by a gentleman named Eugene Kehoe. I'm not quite sure where he got my phone number. I think it was written on the bathroom wall at Danbury Arena, and that is how I've gotten his book recommendations. But this was submitted to us by a gentleman named Eugene Kehoe. Eugene, thank you for your book recommendation. Keep them coming to the Public Reading Club. Send us uh, book recommendations via DM on Instagram, thepublicreadingclub at gmail.com, or you can also find us on Facebook. And uh, thanks so much. Thank you, Eugene. Oh, this is Eugene. I'm a, oh, I like to read. Um, I guess uh, what I'm reading right now is uh, fixing the, the, the John Grisham sparring partners. It's, it, it's a book about lawyers and, and, and sparring. It's not boxing. It's about lawyers. And it's uh, three novellas. Uh, it's all right. It's better than a rooster bar, <laughs> which I just walked out of. <laughs> Happy St. Patrick's Day, WXCI. Uh, yeah, so, uh, this book's three, three short stories. One's Jacob Bergantz, who has Time to Kill fame. First story that John Grisham ever came out of. The next one's about some guy on death row, which I'm probably going to be on. And then the third one is a lawyer versus a lawyer. Uh, not much to really go into there, but, uh, yeah, that's all right. But, uh, my recommendation on sparring partners, I'd say that's <laughs> four out of six bottles. Give them more or less. Uh, I really thought, uh, well, this is Eugene. I gotta go, uh, fixing to find a bathroom around here somewhere, but, uh, keep it cool, WXCI. Bye. Reading Club is a production of WXCI 91.7 Danbury Radio, hosted by Matt Caputo and produced by Pat Frenette and Matt Caputo.